When I was about junior high, my, uh, my grandfather came to live with us, and he had spent the last 20 or 30 years on 40 acres of land with his dogs on Greer's Ferry Lake. So life was real calm and peaceful for my grandfather, and he moved into a house with four active kids going here and there, running around like a bus station. A lot of y'all are living in that space right now. And so we're always going somewhere, and it was really overwhelming to him. And at some point, you know, he was looking at us coming and going nonstop during the day. And at some point, I looked at my mama when she was about to take one of us somewhere else. And he goes, is that trip really necessary? <laughs> and it became a little statement for us in our house. You know, we look at each other and say, is that trip really necessary? And we always kind of made fun of it, especially when it was going to be a great trip, you know. Is it really necessary? But increasingly, I really appreciate what my grandfather was trying to tell us what's really necessary. And so there's a wonderful passage, uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, and the word of our God endures forever. Amen. So a precious story, precious. Another one of those unique Lucan stories that he preserves for us, we see something of his, his flavor of the gospel in what he includes that the other gospel writers don't include. So you recall that the apostle John also includes stories about Mary and Martha. In chapter 11 and chapter 12 of his gospel, in 11 it's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 12, it's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the home right before the triumphal entry, this dinner they have. Such a, such a sweet event. And I like thinking of that in the sense that Jesus had good friends. You know, he was a guy, he ministered to a lot of people, loved a lot of people, a lot of people in his life, and he also had dear friends like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, in verse 38, when Luke says, now as they went on their way, he's reminding us of what Jesus is doing. And you recall back in 951, Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem meaning nothing is going to distract or dissuade him from his singular mission to go to the cross for you. 
to take your sin upon himself and die in your place and rise again. And so he's heading there. Everything is in the context of that. And knowing that's where he is going and that time is short, he's on this extended journey to teach. He's not the wonder worker here, he's the teacher, to disciple his apostles because they desperately need some serious attention. And he leads them on this journey to teach them the way of the cross. And as we hear him teaching his disciples, through them, through Luke, he's teaching us the way of the cross. So there's an interesting detail to note that uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's home is actually located two miles from Jerusalem. So Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem and he's, he's essentially already made it. However, in this travel narrative, journey to Jerusalem, uh, in chapter 13, verse 22, he's gonna be way up north again, near Galilee. And so it seems that he makes various trips. He's meandering as he teaches all the while with his focus on the cross. Um, it's likely he made a number of trips. However, it's also probable that his organization of the material is not chronological, oftentimes, but topical, because he has certain things he wants to teach you. And so the commentator Hendrickson says, Luke could not have chosen a better place to present the present narrative than where he did. And I love thinking through why the gospel writers include what they include where they include it. It's, it's so instructive and insightful. So our question is why in all the places you could include this narrative? Why include it here? Why is it so fitting and instructive to us? Okay, so chapter 10, verse 25, until chapter 11, verse 13, it's a little subsection, it goes together. It's beautiful, when you recognize this, it kind of makes it pop. So you see in verse 25, the lawyer stands up and asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, what's written in God's word? You love it, I love it. So the lawyer summarizes it saying, well, love God and love others. And Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. Go do likewise. It's a pathway to eternal life. And so then the lawyer comes and says, well, who is my neighbor? And so Luke takes that opportunity, Jesus does, to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. And essentially, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's an opportunity to flesh out the second greatest commandment to love others. And so Jesus says, all right, to understand what that commandment means, the second greatest commandment, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of a desperate victim. How would you feel in that situation? You're half dead. What would you want? Now, you seek to become that neighbor to anyone in need, even to those who are different in race and religion, even to your enemies. That's what it's about, the second greatest commandment. Beautiful. However, if Luke's 
stopped there, as stunning as that teaching is, we'd be tempted to say, well, that's the essence of Christianity. You know, let's get busy showing this intestine-churning compassion to everyone in need. That's what discipleship is about. That's what being a Christian is about. And in fact, you don't have to look far to hear, read versions of Christianity that essentially says it's just living the golden rule or loving other people. And so Luke includes a story about Martha and Mary right here, although he could include it in other places. And then the story about prayer right here, right where he does in order to balance us out. And these two stories set before us not the second greatest commandment, but the first greatest commandment, which has to always be first. The story of Mary and Martha teaches us we love God by attending to Jesus's words. And the story about prayer teaches us we love God by speaking with him in prayer. And you'd see we'd never love our neighbor. We'd never be able to love our neighbor well unless we loved God well. It's the vertical that gives us resources for the horizontal. And we'll never love God well until we see Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Taking the initiative to love us first going all the way to laying down his life for us at the cross because the gospel is an amazing announcement about what Jesus has done for us in love to cover our sin. It's not advice about how we can compensate for what we've done wrong. And it leads us to 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. It's God's love in Christ that changes us and that's why we sit at Jesus' feet. And so there's four points. There's a complaint, and then there's a correction, and then there's a commendation, and then there's a conclusion. So first, the complaint. So again, now on their way, as they went on their way, and again, that detail, it's a good one. Part of Jesus' humiliation on this earth is that he's a traveler 958 says foxes have holes and the birds of the air has nests and the son of man has nowhere to put his head. He's a traveler. He has no home. He's in desperate need of hospitality. The creator of all the food in the earth has to rely on his creatures for food. It's a lowering of himself. And so he and his disciples arrive to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as was his custom, Jesus surely sent messengers ahead of him and told them that he was about to arrive. That's what he did at 9.52. And so they arrive and Mary and Martha have both been preparing for them. Well, Martha welcomes Jesus and his company into her house, notice. It's her house. So she's described as the mistress of the home. She's probably the older sister. She's older than Mary, most likely, and probably older than Lazarus. So she may be a widow. The house could belong to her. And so Martha is the primary hostess, the one most concerned that all is in order and all is done right. And so Martha's busying herself, receiving her guests well, putting the finishing touches on the food, preparing to serve it, setting the table. You can just imagine all she's doing to show this good hospitality to 13 weary, hungry men that have entered her home. Especially Jesus is there. I mean, you've been there. You've, 
had Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners and people you couldn't wait to host well and all that goes into that scurrying about. And it's also a bit stressful, isn't it? And you just imagine what it's like for Martha. She has no appliances. You know, there's no oven, there's no refrigerator, there's no dishwasher. It's labor intensive what Martha has to do. And so the point of the story is never to demean Martha nor Martha's labors. In fact, in Luke, there's a special slant on the gospel that table fellowship is so crucial. Opening up your home is so symbolic of extending the grace of the kingdom. In Luke, it's such a a cherished act. It shows the kingdom of God. What she's doing is honorable. In fact, in chapter 10, earlier when they sent out the 72, they were to enter into someone's home and if that home opened themselves and received them well, the the preacher, the messenger, was to declare God's shalom over them, dictating that their way of receiving them in their home indicated their status in the kingdom. I mean, it was that important. So Martha and Mary aren't contrasted or pitted against each other. There there are two ways to love Jesus. We serve him and we hear him. We do for him and we, we be with him. We are with him. And so that leads to what Mary chooses to do while Martha is hurrying around. You have these two pictures, one just this activity and one just sitting at Jesus' feet. And Luke describes Jesus as the Lord here. He clarifies Jesus' status in order to heighten the importance of what Mary chooses to do. It's underscored also because we know he's en route to Jerusalem. It's critical. And so Jesus enters the home and immediately begins to teach. And therefore, Mary, she's aware. She stops what she's doing and she sits to listen, to attend to his words. However, Martha's in the zone. You know, she is dialed in, pedal to the metal, getting it done. And so you can just see Martha passing by Mary, who's broken away and is sitting down and and giving her that sideways look a couple of times, that little sister of mine. And Luke lets us in to Martha's attitude. She's distracted with much serving. And that word distracted is loaded. It carries this idea of being overburdened or overoccupied, over busy, being pulled away, yanked around in so many different directions with so many details, juggling so much, stretched, pressured. We get the sense that she's, she's really overdoing it with this much serving. She's trying to do too much. She's trying to make it too right. It appears that she wanted to sit at Jesus' feet. She wanted to be doing what Mary was doing, but this desire to make things really special in her mind prohibited her from doing that. So you can imagine in her mental, emotional state how there's this, this shift that takes place in her attitude. It's now no longer about hospitality, it's about Martha. It's now no longer about Jesus, it's about Martha. 
She's, she's stewing. She's feeling invisible, put upon, unappreciated. It's, it's always like this. No one cares, resentful of her sister, frustrated with Jesus. And I read this and, you know, I have various memories that come into my mind when I have looked just like this. I started doing something really good, something I was really excited about, and I wanted to bless my family, but then at some point it got hard and no one was noticing, and my mindset shifted and turned and turned inward and different, and there was this different aura that I was emitting. Just imagine Martha in the kitchen while everyone else is in the other room enjoying themselves. She's banging pots around and walking around with a huff. And so it finally gets too much for her and she just boils over in this anger outburst. Uh, It's kind of this cauldron of kind of self-pity, self-righteousness, just brews over, spews out. It propels her to lash out at Jesus. The very one She's so excited to receive into her home and prepare a sumptuous dinner for. Don't you know that just must have just stung her so badly? And so she she triangulates him. You know, she, she manipulates him. She's mad at her sister, so instead of taking her sister aside, she just dumps all her frustration onto Jesus and blames him. I mean... Jesus entered as her guest and he becomes her enemy. What just happened here? And she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And the implication of the question is that she assumes he doesn't care. Like she shifted like that. Like you don't care. And the guest became the one at fault. And isn't just that how we do. Our hearts are scary and volatile. And we have a problem with someone or something and before we know it, we've taken it out on somebody else or dumped it on somebody else to fix it. And I mean, it's just family dynamics 101. It's church systems 101 played out for us. Nothing's new. And the point for us is just to stop and be aware of that, what's down deep. Slow down and think it through. So there's this fallen drag in this human heart that too easily our service ceases to be about Jesus and it becomes about us. And it's just that kingdom of self, that root idol that we all deal with, fallen man deals with. Well, there's a correction, a correction. And Jesus is so gracious. And so what wonderful opportunities it is for growth when we've had some kind of anger episode like that. Count it a blessing. Martha wouldn't know what was up in her heart unless she spewed it all out over everybody. So can't you just imagine what the environment was like? You probably heard crickets. Like, probably really uncomfortable in that little bitty house. And Jesus, so wise and loving, he's the wonderful counselor. Like he refuses to be triangulated. He refuses to be pressured and manipulated. In fact, if you think of all the times in the gospels where somebody tried to get Jesus to do something or ask a certain question, he never responds the way they want him to because he knows the heart of man. He knows what we need. And so he replies, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. 
but one thing is necessary. You're going on a trip, maybe overseas, you got so many details. Right before you leave home, you go, do I have my passport? Do I have my money? What's most necessary? Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, what's the one thing necessary? So Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, it's a way of expressing sympathy and affection to her while at the same time getting her attention and gently correcting, rebuking her. And it's the same with us too. Hebrews 13, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. See him rebuke her this way and see him do that from the throne of grace to you. So he pinpoints the real issue. Martha, it's not... Mary's not the issue, I'm not the issue, it's you, Martha. Remember James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Our knee-jerk is always to say, in the midst of a conflict, it's your fault if you hadn't done this. But James steps us back and he says, don't look outward, look inward. What are those desires, those over-the-top, ruling, idolatrous desires? And it's similar to what Jesus is helping Martha with here. Martha, you're so fretful, tumultuous over these compulsions to get everything right. What's going on there with you? And by using the word anxious, Jesus connects this story with the parable of the sower, where Jesus says, you know, we can choke the seed of the word by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Cares has the same root as anxious. She has so many cares here wrapped around her, her expectations and really her pride here that she's choking the reception of the word literally. She's not listening to Jesus. And so it's kind of comical. One commentator, Nolan, says, she tells Jesus what he must say instead of sitting at his feet and listening to what Jesus wishes to say. And have you ever done that in prayer? You know, you're, I mean, we want to complain to Jesus. He invites that, but there's a way of complaining where we're humble and there's a way of standing over Jesus and telling him what he ought to do. So Jesus tenderly rebukes Martha for letting her strength become her weakness, for letting her good desires become ruling desires, from being distracted by so many good things that she misses, she misses the one thing in all of that which is most necessary. And in the most critical moment of Jesus's ministry, I mean, she should have imitated Mary here. She should have stopped what she was doing and sat at Jesus' feet to listen to Jesus' word. As important and necessary as is service for Jesus, loving our neighbor, what's even more fundamental, urgent, is hearing Jesus' gospel word and in that way loving God. And so do you see the one thing necessary? Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. If you look at chapter 10 leading up to this point, in the mission of the 72, they came back saying the demons fell because of our ministry. And Jesus says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The most important thing. Well, then in verse 25, the lawyer says, teacher, how must I inherit eternal life? Well, that's the most important question. And then in chapter 10, verse 39, if that's the most important question, then what's the most important practice? Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. So I just think in our day of so much distraction, pulling us everywhere, and it gets worse, it keeps getting worse, don't we need this admonition? Jesus is, the disciple of Jesus is one who practices resisting that drag of too many things and cultivates the one thing necessary, God's word of life. Is it going to be said of us? That leads to the commendation Commendation. So Jesus goes on to commend Mary. He says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And that good portion reminds us of Psalm 33, uh, excuse me, Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus is equated with Yahweh himself as our portion to know him. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna pull you away. I'm not gonna pull Mary away from the first commandment in order to get her engaged in the way you want her to be engaged in the second commandment. Because the disciple of Jesus is never too busy to sit at Jesus' feet. See, whereas Martha was focused on preparing a meal, Mary was centered on consuming a meal and that meal of the bread of life. I'm not pulling her away from that. Well, in verse 37, Jesus ends up the parable of the Good Samaritan by looking at the lawyer and saying, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor like that. However, with this little story we learned that we'll never go and do likewise unless we sit at Jesus' feet. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And our root, basic, central means of growth is to look at Christ. And that which you behold, you become. And that which you gaze upon, you grow into. And so Jesus is just saying, you got to look at me. And nothing is more important than that. And so Mary is sitting attentively, contemplatively at Jesus' feet. And this is the posture of a student. In fact, when Paul shares his testimony in Acts, he says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And so she is like in the posture of the student, which really in that day and age was shocking. A Jew would look at this and say, a woman amongst men disciples and learning the word? And we see another emphasis of Luke's gospel. He, he pairs women's stories and men's stories and he's saying, look, women should sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him in order to grow in grace and share the grace of the gospel with others. And Mary becomes a model 
of sitting at Jesus' feet and avoiding an over-occupation in too many things. So the question for us is, you know, do we have something of this model in our lives? Are all of our distractions and other things, are they truly necessary? Do we have to be honest and say, well, they really are crowding out my absorption of your word and sitting at Jesus' feet? Can it be said of us that we are people of the book, like we eat it, like we eat it as our bread? Do we commune with Christ in his word? Is the gospel melting our hearts so we love God first and then love our neighbor as a result? Do we know that the gospel is a thing that changes us? Are we people of the word in our priorities? Are we occupied with so many things and just not enough time? And Jesus is looking at you here today and saying, you got to do that. It's your basic means of grace. And so that leads to the conclusion. And the conclusion isn't in here, it's in John 11 and 12. And it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and then his story of dining in Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' house right before the triumphal entry. And so what we find in these delightful stories is that Martha is still Martha, and Mary is still Mary. And it's a good thing. Like God crafted them differently. Martha has her personality and strengths and gifting and Mary has hers and God loves them both. Martha is more active, more of a doer. Mary is more reflective, more being still and insightful and contemplative. And we see them as they should be in the gospel being transformed. So think of Lazarus. At Lazarus' death, Mary, Jesus finally gets there and Mary confronts him. Jesus, she says, where have you been? And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Martha gives about the best profession of faith in the whole gospel. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who was coming into the world. Look, Thomas gave a good one too, but this is prior to the cross. Martha's a lady that needs answers when life gets difficult to face the challenges of life. And she shows that she has sat at Jesus's feet and she's internalized that and she knows what she needs to move forward. I need to know that you're the redeemer and the resurrection of the life. The strongest profession in the whole gospel is Martha. And then we see Mary at Lazarus's tomb. She confronts Jesus, where were you? But Mary doesn't need explanations. When Mary confronts Jesus, Jesus just cries. Because Mary needs to know that his heart is engaged with a brother. And both of them operate out of their personalities and gifts and Jesus gives them both what they need. And they both show two personalities transformed by the gospel. And then we get to the triumphal entry in that meal in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. 
And we see Martha, it says, Martha was serving, amen. Open your home to Jesus right before he goes to the cross. Exercise your gifts, and she's doing it well. You get the idea that she's doing it contentedly. And then Mary walks in, and she takes this alabaster jar of perfume, her prized possession, what she was storing for herself, and she's overwhelmed with gratitude to Jesus. And she breaks it, and she pours it on his head, on his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And we see Martha serving, and Mary showing her gratitude and appreciation. She'd sat at Jesus' feet, and now she kneels at Jesus' feet to anoint him. Because all of our learning of Jesus issues in devotion to Jesus, just like that. And so it's a passage that says it's all about Christ, everything. We sit at his feet as a people through his word. The gospel of grace changes us such that we love God and we love others. Thanks be to God, amen. Let's stand.